Ladies and gentlemen, we're very fortunate to have today's guest all the way from London, Dr. Laura London, England, by the way, <laughs> the, the big London. <laughs> Dr. Laura Toogood is a communications professional and digital commentator with broad academic and in industry experience. She's managing director of private clients at Digitalis and the founder of luxury lifestyle publication, The Sloney. I first heard of her through our president-elect, Gordon McIver, who you've met. Uh, Gordon told us that her book, Journalism and PR, News Media and Public Relations in the Di Digital Age, was sending shockwaves through the communications community and was the new must-read for all, for all communications executives. So who knew? Um, I'm a lawyer. I don't know the stuff. Gordon, thank you for sharing it with us. John Cruikshank apparently agrees with Gordon's assessment, and we're very grateful that he's agreed to join us today to discuss the book with Dr. Toogood. You will all have heard of Mr. Cruikshank. He's president and publisher of the Toronto Star and president of Star Media Group of Torstar. He's a veteran media executive and has had a long and accomplished career in journalism, having served as CEO and publisher of the Sun-Times Media Group, publisher of CBC News, and managing editor of The Globe and Mail. This is just a small sampling of his career highlights, but the thing that's really exciting about John is, and I learned this, he has a TED Talk. How cool is that? <laughs> Not just any TED Talk, but one that is directly on point today, the threat to democracy posed by an increasingly technologically distracted public. So ladies and gentlemen, Please join me in welcoming Laura Toogood and John Crookshank to our podium. There's a stair up here, Laura, if it's easier to... Uh, need a hand? Okay. Well, welcome to this side of the Atlantic. Great to have you. Thank you, John. This is the book, PR versus... No, PR, Journalism and PR. There you go. News media and public relations in the digital age. Laura, you and, and, uh, and John Lloyd are authors. Tell us a little bit about, about the, the background to the book. Why did you write it? Uh, well, so I wrote it with uh, John Lloyd, as you said, who's the co-author. And John has won many awards as a journalist, and he's currently a contributing editor to the Financial Times. Uh, meanwhile, my background is very much in technology and the digital revolution and online communications. And that's where I was uh, doing a lot of academic work and also increasingly more so some work in the business space with a uh, digitalist reputation. And John and I got our heads together about uh, both industries, journalism and PR, and we figured that they are changing dramatically. Um, journalism is experiencing crisis times. PR is growing and growing in strength. And there wasn't a huge amount of um, academic work out there or literature about the change and why it was happening and, and where it's really going. So with uh, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford, we set about um, coming up with an idea of potentially actually an academic paper to start with. Um, so, you know, a small, a small piece of work. Uh, but as is with these things, we interviewed lots and lots of uh, people from uh, the PR industry, the journalism world, and it gathered momentum and grew and grew and grew. And uh, 18 months later, we had a book um, to, to release, and that's why obviously I'm here here today. Tremendous. Now, a, a subtitle might be the rise and fall of journalism and the rise and rise of public relations. Mm -hmm. All right. G give us a, a little bit of the history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, we're in a, a world now where technology uh, is is changing so many industries, particularly with journalism and PR. If we rewind 10, 20 years, journalism really did have the upper hand. Um, PR executives were writing their press releases, trying to go for coffee and lunches with journalists in sort of the event that they would potentially get their brand or the person that they're representing onto the radar of the journalist. But ultimately, the journalist was the person who had the power. And because it was a case of communicating in an audience of uh, you know, one to many, and there was relatively limited reciprocal dialogue from readers. So the, the power was with journalism. 
What's happened is that technology has meant there are so many more communications channels now emerging, and many of these are social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, um, blogs, even Instagram, YouTube, and it's giving uh, consumers and readers and the general public a greater voice, which also means for PR, there are lots of different channels where they can actually access the market. So no longer do they always have to go to the journalist to gain coverage about their brand or to position their argument. Um, they can actually uh, use direct access channels. Uh, and that's, I suppose, one of the key changes is technology is facilitating the ability for you to actually reach your audience in, in a different way and not always via broadsheets. Right, okay. Now we'll come back to the broadsheets, mm -hmm. but it's fascinating. You say something very, very interesting in the, in the midst of the book about how the communications people are now sitting at the big table. Mm -hmm. right? They have gone from being people who do, did press releases mm -hmm. to people who are now strategists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you cite people like David Axelrod, mm -hmm. um, who I remember as a former Chicago Tribune reporter. Um, go mm -hmm. figure. Uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about that movement from, from the communication person, the press release writer, to, to the, the, the number two, literally, in, mm -hmm. in politics. Well, I believe reputation has become a lot more fragile in today's world, and that's one of the reasons that PR has become a top-table profession. Uh, you know, uh, the likes of, of Twitter um, and Facebook and other communication channels means that consumer perception can change very quickly. It can gather momentum. If you're going through a crisis situation, you are expected to react and respond very, very quickly. And we have a big challenge, uh, certainly in many of, from the corporate side of things, uh, with many of the, the board directors haven't grown up around this type of technology. They're not used to this type of technology, and they don't necessarily know how to use it and how to engage it. And communication is now sort of fundamental to a lot of corporate policy. And I suppose that's why it's now vital that you have good PR advice from the very, very beginning. And you really need to have a strategic approach to communications because it can go wrong very quickly. It does mean your corporate leaders, just like your politicians, mm -hmm. have to have a little bit of the actor or actress in them, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yes, and there's nowhere to hide in the social media world. And that was something else that we, we discussed at length with uh, PR executives in the book, is the fact that there is this pressure to communicate and pressure to have a, a presence. Um, a, a research we recently released through Digitalis Reputation in London, actually, focused all about uh, the search engine results pages and where people are looking for information. They're no longer always going to the mainstream publications or these types of uh, established news media and sources. Rather, they're, they're Googling uh, somebody's name or Googling a brand. Uh, so you're walking down the street, and I'm sure everyone is aware that if someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, then... Just type it into your phone, type it into Google, and it'll be there. But, of course, we're seeing this... Um, difficulty then with how we position ourselves and how we position our brands and uh, I think over 86% of people now trust what they see on the first page of Google and over 92 or 94%, I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head now, will be impacted if they see something negative, which just shows how fragile reputation is and how the online life is, is really important and how we are betrayed in our online media. Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I, I've got to, I have to admit that that was really the only relief I felt in the book was, was that there is nowhere to hide, uh, which used to be our rule. Um, but the, the fact is, and you do get at this, it's, there's nowhere to hide both from, from truthful information and mistruth. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, and, and it becomes more and more difficult to sort it through. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, social media uh, presents that challenge where it is wonderful for um, engaging what we have called the citizen journalist in the book. So now the media have access to uh, a greater amount of reporters in, in regards to sort of the general public, really, and the people that are there on the ground experiencing real-life events. One, one example which I, I should mention and I cite it in the book is I was in uh, Val d'Isère, which is a ski resort in France, and there was a 
big chalet fire, and it was filmed by a skier on his iPhone. He then submitted this to the BBC, who a few hours later ran it as their, one of their headline stories in the news summary. Now, they didn't have any reporters out there, and they didn't have access to the story other than through what we would call now the citizen journalist. So it's great for being able to document um, history and, and, and real-life events and have more sources available. But as you quite rightly say, there can be this struggle with misinformation and something I was speaking at the uh, Canadian Public Relations Society conference in Montreal uh, only a couple of days ago and one of the examples I cited there was uh, in relation to the Sandy Hook school killings where initially the wrong brother was actually named as the murderer. Now while that was an error that I believe was made by a press agency in the first instance once it reached the realm of social media it grew and grew gravity Uh, gathered great momentum, which caused problems for the accuracy in reporting the story, um, and also, needless to say, you know, the the reputation implications of the, the wrong brother. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And we saw another version of that in the mm-hmm. in the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah a- absolutely. The the um, uh, one of the other things that 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 you get out of the book, the thing so interesting, is the challenges for for the traditional media. Um, and, and you don't really suggest that there is anything but traditional media, news media, and I, th- and I think that's that's useful. Is 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 that so much is happening at once that undermines both the business model and, to a certain extent, their capacity to be to be authoritative. Can I talk a little bit about that? I mean, you, you sort of glanced at it already. The fall of the the fall of, of advertising, as well as as the enormous increase in in competition. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are so many more channels available for people to get their news from, to get their content from, and a lot of it is freely published as well. And it's people writing because they they want to write, they love to write. They're not trying uh, to make money. And this puts great stress on uh, the industry of journalism, who uh, a lot of the, the editors and the reporters, you know, they do need to make it work from a commercial sense for it to survive. The publishers do, certainly. The, the pub, they, well, yeah, exactly. I'm not going to rely publishers. on our reporters to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. It, it, it's interesting that you should say that because um, a, a lot of the time the reporters actually aren't really interested in uh, making money at all. They just want to write and uh, tell the story. Get out the truth. <laughs> Get out the truth, quite. Um, no, but it, it, I think it puts a lot of pressure on journalism to um, perform when it comes to outputting uh, high-quality content. And this is what we're seeing uh, the big publications that are surviving this uh, change and coming out well and progressing well. They're really focusing on top quality investigative journalism and focusing on fundamentally what they are very, very good at, um, as you quite rightly say, telling the truth. And I think the reputation of the main uh, newspaper brands, the main television brands, the, the credibility and the authority that they bring definitely shouldn't be overlooked. And there is arguably a tendency nowadays, certainly with PR, to become preoccupied and obsessed with social media, getting enough information out on all of these channels, managing it. But the endorsement of the highbrow publications still does hold a lot of value. And you may speak to, certainly, I suppose, from a financial news perspective or a bank, and they'd be much happier with potentially two or three lines in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal than lots and lots of information out on blogs or social media feeds. Right. The... the, um the structure of, of journalism in, in Great Britain, though, which is the primary focus, uh, and and how you kind of structured the the thought about about this, is quite different from that in North America. I mean, in the, in in Great Britain, you've got half a dozen national brands, um, and and some of them are very very high quality and 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 are quite authoritative. The great bulk of people who read or watch television news in Canada or in the United States are dealing with metropolitan newspapers mm-hmm. and 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 local television t- television shows. So they aren't they aren't big brands. They aren't part of it. Are we really are we really moving to a point where you can imagine in the United States a New York Times, a Wall Street Journal, and not much else? 
Mm-hmm. Um, potentially, like I say, although the mainstream publications do have a great reputation and they do shine through and they can often be considered a leading light in what is a crowded space, one of the advantages of the digital revolution is it has given the opportunity for new um, sites and new domains and new voices uh, to, to garner more attention. So, for example, the Huffington Post you know, has now become a very creditable um, site for news and that started as a, as a free media domain and still you know, is basically running on the blogging material. Um, one of the other key focuses that we looked at actually addressed this idea of every company becoming a media company mm-hmm. and what is happening certainly in the UK market, and I would say that this isn't exclusive to the UK market. Um, it's a model that can be and is being rolled out in other countries as well. But the idea that people are now looking to brands and brands are looking to journalists to bring them on board and to become a news site and a news channel. So we have the likes of Red Bull, who obviously align themselves with extreme sports or Formula One racing, and they will interview some of the best Formula One drivers, the best teams, and really act almost like a news site, a newspaper, a, a, a journalist's domain. But this is actually supported by a brand that is subconsciously ultimately trying to, trying to make money out of that. But it's becoming a media brand and pulling people potentially away in some instances and arguably more in consumer-based um, PR and consumer-based journalism from some of the major brands. And there is this pressure now to be a media company and to put out a lot of content online. And so many people get it uh, right, so many people get it wrong. We have Land Rover, the big car company, in the UK, they ran a very uh, famous social media campaign under the hashtag Hibernot. And it's an incredibly simple concept because they are all about off-road vehicles and promoting the outdoor lifestyle. And what they were doing was encouraging their social media community members to go out and take a photograph of them embracing winter. So rather than hibernating, the idea is to hibernate. And the key here is also, I suppose, to make your own word up as well, so you can really own it. Um, and it's uh, it, it spread like wildfire. Um, and it was really a great example of a brand becoming a media company and making this direct communication work, taking the influence away from um, appearing in maybe the Times or the Telegraph or the Financial Times because the impact and the reach of their successful social media campaign trumped arguably any article or feature that appeared in a newspaper for, for one day. Right, right. You, you also got for not only not only is every company in effect a media company, but many individuals uh, are are and create create great value for themselves by being their own brand, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and that PR professionals now deal not just with with uh, media corporations, um, but also have to deal with brands within human brands mm-hmm. within media corporations. Yeah, uh, th- there's two points that maybe I should touch on here that that were interesting in the sense that. Increasingly, we're now thinking when it comes to reputation and positioning and branding, it's one reputation and one brand. It's not about the personal brand and the corporate brand. It is about the individual as much as it is about the company. And companies are becoming wiser to this and more proactive in advising uh, people about their online profile, about their legacy, about their digital communication for lots of different reasons. I think for security risks, um, but as well as sort of almost wanting to own the profile and the digital footprint of their employees. Um, the people are, are becoming very valuable to them. But in the in the journalist, journalism area, uh, there have been... I was having this conversation with uh, John Lloyd, my co-author, only last week. There have been instances where some key reporters actually gain more social media following and more social interest than potentially their publication. Right. We have a couple of writers in the UK. Caitlin Warren is, is one example. She writes for um, three or four big, big publications. But her social media reach actually surpasses any of these publications. So you you get to a stage where you think, well, actually, she could go out and she could create her own publication, her own news site. She doesn't need to to write for The Times, The Telegraph. She doesn't need to go on the BBC. She's got her own readership, her own followers. And and why not just utilize utilize that and for it to become about the, the person? 
But uh, one of uh, John's colleagues quite rightly pointed out that when you leave the safety and the environment and the support structure that a big news organization provides you as a journalist, then it can be quite a a nerve-wracking step, Uh, not only because you're under pressure then to commercialize your own model, but you leave yourself open from from a, a legal aspect as well. So whilst the journalists have become their own brand themselves, they're not necessarily wanting to make the step away yet, maybe it will change, from the big companies that are supporting them. And that's a, a huge value, I think, for, for the broadsheets and, and the news sites. Yeah. Although I wonder, it's, it's um, unless you, you have an inner commitment to poverty, it's very hard to see how someone creating their own brand uh, can maintain their integrity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've had you know examples of people creating their own brand you know in the past. Guys like Izzy Stone, for example, right in mm-hmm. the in the states, you know, extraordinary work that he did literally on his own in in Washington over many many years. But he didn't want to get rich doing it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get at the truth. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people we're talking about who 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 are personal brand builders, their their goal is 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 the filthy lucre rather than the truth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I suppose I mean, it depends entirely what industry you're coming from. Yeah, mm. Certainly with the, the journalists, of course, you know, they actually they write because they're passionate about writing. They report because they want the truth to be told um, and they really want to communicate with the citizens. So to them, uh, there isn't this uh, uh, desire necessarily to, to make lots of money uh, by doing this. And actually, you know, quite the opposite, that you know, they don't necessarily want to, to make money from it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, for them to, to go on, money does play a factor. And that's where we're seeing one of the uh, challenges that we're facing is this uh, blur between editorial and advertorial, which is becoming much more of a problem as we move into the online world. Uh, what is actually the truth? You know, we're living in a world of advertising where fundamentally everything is being supported by a brand that has an objective to make money. Um, and perhaps we can lose that level of objectivity and, and credibility. I mean, certainly with um, the up-and-coming journalists and the up-and-coming citizen journalists and bloggers who maybe they aren't trained in the same way as right. the traditional press are, so they are quite happy, again, more so with consumer PR, but potentially to write about products, to write about fashion brands, to write about where they're going, what they're doing. Meanwhile, they're probably being paid for this, yet they're not declaring it on their website. And they, you know, they, some of these people have hundreds and thousands of followers, and they could be targeting the teenage market or the young adult market who, again, maybe are a more naive reader and don't realize that actually behind this news feed is a big commercial pitch coming from, from various brands who are, who are trying to... To make money. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you had you had a there's a wonderful section in the in the book. I was really fascinated by it, a great observation it seemed to me, um, because I've been a little puzzled by it um, in in the all of the rhetoric around around native advertising, uh, which which I thought I once understood as advertorial, um, but but you make the point in the book and you make the distinction I think between between the past and the and the present in in that there is now so much promotional material out there mm-hmm. there's so much spin uh, in all of our lives um, some truth based some not that that marketers are now looking for places of authority to associate themselves with mm-hmm. and that and that. I, I think the point that you were trying to make is is that that's that's the reason the native advertising is now so attractive because it is nestled up against the truth or 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 a, or, or, or a place that has that has a reputation for seeking the truth. I think PR practitioners have been very uh, quick to recognise this opportunity, you know, to push their products, their brands, whoever they're representing, through this slight blur of editorial and advertorial, and it's been going on now for some time. But as you quite rightly point point out, there is um, a little bit of a backlash against it because people ultimately are starting to ignore you know, some of this content. If they're putting content out there and they know that it's, somebody is endorsing it because they're getting paid and perhaps they're not even declaring that they're getting paid, then 
it loses the value in the PR placement in the first instance because the consumer is going to be wise to that. And perhaps what we're seeing is more of a move towards looking for the truth and a pushback in the online media world against this sort of saturation of marketing content and advertising. And that's where ultimately journalism will triumph um, as an industry because if they stick to the, the values and, and, and the morals of um, providing objective, uh, high-quality, truthful content, then that's what the readers are looking for in the first instance. I think that's an op- optimist view of, of the, <laughs> and I, I hope you're right, and I actually, there are some times of the day that I believe you're right. Um, <laughs> but it, it, is, it is fascinating to me that, that isn't there a bit of a paradox in in pushing native or the, 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 the push completely understandable for native advertising to to sit with highly credible titles because in the end might it not undermine those titles could we get to the point where there is no authority perhaps we could <laughs> <laughs> that's the pessimist side <laughs> yeah this the, the, the counter argument is I, I completely agree with you how can we um, make the model work? from a commercial perspective, from a financial perspective, how can journalism survive um, without having the support and the convergence that we're seeing with the advertising and the PR model? And I think really, at the moment, it's still quite a a muddled area. Um, we, We don't know where it's going. Apart from there is definitely a trend towards the highly specialized um, publications, the targeted audiences, um, this idea of the Mail Online, well, is you know uh, very well known in the UK, but I'm sure Mail Online, having now come outside and, and tackled the American market and had an online model that has been very successful, um, is a good example of a publication that's just trying to get as many readers as possible. It's, it's using yes. a lot of SEO, um, search engine optimization. Uh, it's making sure that its websites are picked up in lots of different territories with with local content, celebrity content, attracting readers. And for a long time, I think people thought this push towards extended reach was, was the answer for journalism. And, you know, that's how it was going to survive, was reach as many right. people as possible. But it's my view that actually now the paid for, the, the, the sponsored, uh, so the, the paywall-protected content is going to triumph over that. Because now when we start to live in an environment where it becomes the norm to pay for high-quality content, then that's where people are going to move towards. Equally, the advertisers are also going to see that, but you know they can perhaps follow an advertising model that's more similar to the, the, the traditional model that we have in the offline world. Right. Um, and I think the key for, for the survival is the specialist publications with the, the high-quality news and and arguably a smaller, condensed following um, will will work. Fascinating. Yeah, I've, I <laughs> have been concerned whenever I look at the Daily Mail that at some point they're going to run out of starlets and swimsuits, right? And 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 they're you know their readers, we down their readership the is going to totally crash, mm-hmm. right? Because there's not much else going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the problem with the with the model that that, that you're talking about, the, the the highly specialized model. Uh, it's a, it, it has to be subscriber based, mm-hmm. presumably, uh, and so your revenue has to has to come there. And it, I mean, it, it, frankly, it, it it becomes very very narrow. It's a return to like complete narrow casting, and mm-hmm. and it's probably going to wind up being highly elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's it's that might might be a model that makes some sense in a. British environment where you do have small mm-hmm. number of, and, and you have a sort of a concept of there being a national market. For, for North America, there's a national market, but it's very, very, very thin. Mm-hmm. And the thick market is local TV news and, and local newspapers. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's how do we reconcile those, those issues, I guess, mm-hmm. are the real challenges for us in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your view on, on where it's going to go? Because as a, as a publisher, I think you know, it is wonderful. Am I, swapping, am I allowed to do this? Can I swap? Can I swap? Can I be the, the person questioning? <laughs> sure. We're, we've, we've, we've announced at the start that we're making a big bet on, on the tablet mm-hmm. uh, and on a, on a tablet app uh, because we see there 
from looking at what our, our friends and colleagues at La Presse have done, we see an opportunity to, to engage a younger audience. Um, we don't have any trouble engaging an older audience and a, a wonderfully high quality low, uh, older audience. That is one that stretches across the whole of the, of, uh, uh, you know, the wage spectrum. Um, but we're looking, we're looking for the creation of the next generation of, of journalism. Um, but we have come to the conclusion that you can't do that with a paid model. Mm-hmm. Not, if you want, not if you want to get a real substantial chunk of, of the market. And we do, and we do because we think that you've got to have an engaged citizenry to actually run a democracy. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have a lot of people there. And, and so that's, we've been very lucky. Our, 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 uh, our company has has put a lot of resources and and uh, tremendous enthusiasm behind behind this push. So that for us is is, is the next thing. Mm-hmm. One of the key problems actually um, is uh, as soon as you go behind a, a paywall and it becomes a subscription model because there is so much content out there that's freely available and some very good quality content out there. You lose the reader and the reader goes to what they can have for free because they think, well, you know, why am I going to pay for this? But then, uh, you know, we, we've touched on briefly the the advantage of having the investigative reporting and, and you know, putting the, the resource behind investigative reporting because that's something that you can do as a journalist and you can do it really, really well. Yep. You're not necessarily going to be able to do that level of reporting at all as a citizen journalist. Um, you know, you're, you're not prepared to, to operate the same way. So arguably, I suppose, people will be attracted to the brand um, based on the fact that you're producing the quality. Yeah, although even even for, I mean, our, our experience has been, and what we're seeing in North America certainly, is that, is that even when you have very high quality, um, uh, if you put it if if you put it behind a wall, um, you're actually limiting the portion of the audience that you can get. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're not going to you're not going to get anybody under 50. They just don't feel that they should mm-hmm. have to pay for for digital journalism, mm-hmm. no matter how good it is. And that's um, partly because of social media, the way yes. the consumption habits are changing. Um, the fact that uh, I'm sure it's this the same here that people have a certain loyalty to a brand of newspaper. And previously, you know, before social was around, you would go down to the newsstand, you would pick up your copy, and that was it. That would be your news that you were consuming. You wouldn't take much notice of the competitive brands or, or other areas. But now, if people are logging onto their Twitter account, potentially they're following lots and lots of different publications, lots and lots of different reporters, and increasingly so, lots, I'm afraid to say, lots of brands now yes. who are coming up with the, the interesting features and, and the news content. So if you exclude yourself from that space, it can be, can be quite difficult. Yes, no, no question about it. I don't think we should, we should exclude uh, the rest of this audience here. <laughs> Are there folks with questions? We do have microphones for you. Terrific discussion, um, Dr. Tugut and uh, Mr. Krukshank. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what is the true authority, just to build on the discussion to that point. Is it not that people are looking for a variety of choices in their information to not have to make an assessment of, yes, the Toronto Star you know, believes we need to move this direction, knocking down the Gardner Expressway or needs to move in this direction on something else. But what I think what we saw in something interesting in Canadian politics last week was a a politician retiring, Peter McKay, where universally the story was the same except one journalist, Andrew Coyne of the National Post, took a very different point of view and was very negative. And I think my sense is both in uh, in, in North America and in Europe, that there's a hunger for people to have this variety of different points of view. They're not just looking for one point of view, but they're interested in, in the thought that somebody has that expertise. But what is truly the authority is the person themselves. What do you think of, is that the reason that we're finding that we're not comfortable with just one authority? I think... It's um, it's interesting the fact that the technology side of things has um, opened up so many more avenues and so many more um, forums for people to voice their opinion. And as you quite rightly say, you know, is it is it giving a more diverse news output? Yes, I, I think it probably is. And perhaps maybe we're in a more competitive news world now, where you know, to attract the attention of all these readers, you need to take a different viewpoint. You can't be so um, narrow 
narrowly focused on certain stories or certain agendas. And maybe technology is one thing that's come out of technology that's very positive is this forum for people to um, express themselves differently and engage readers um, and potentially, I don't know, raise the, the intellect of, of readers as well and consumers, if I, if I may go as far to say that. Yeah. I, I think, though, you have to make a, a bit of a distinction. Um, because I think what we've discovered is that there's a small percentage of people who are interested in the point of view of a news organization, right? And, and it's absolutely vital to the identity of the brand, but it's not what, what, what builds a very broad audience. What builds a very broad audience, I think, is, is a, a, uh, a very diverse agenda and one that, that is, is both useful and, in, to some extent, entertaining and engaging. Right? I think it has to be all those things. And, and clearly, at this point, um, news organizations are going to have to do that with a multimedia approach, which is, which is why we're, we're, you know, we've found on the, on the tablet uh, an opportunity inside, a, inside a, an app, inside a closed app, to bring to bear all of the, 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 the tools that, that are now you know, available to us uh, to try and, and engage, entertain, delight, and inform. But the, I think the challenge from, from the social side is you actually, it's, it's to have that certain you know, small group of people who are gonna choose the, you know, the six best websites in the world to read every day, and it's a very, very small group. The benefit that we've had over a very long period is, is people who are, are reading and reading at a deep level uh, or, or viewing you know, television news at a, at a deep level um, and, and in that way actually educating themselves as citizens, right? Actually knowing what's going on, right? Knowing who the mayor is, being able to tell you where Syria is on a map, you know, I mean, those, those kinds of things. And, and that's what we risk losing, it seems to me, unless, unless there is a more you know, a, a more deeply engaged um, uh, readership or viewership uh, in the news for the future. Is that, is that yeah, ring with you? I think something else that I just um, thought that could be worth mentioning here is the fact that the reader has become a lot more mobile. And certainly in the UK, rather now um, it being a case of the, the newspapers and the editorial conferences leading the news agenda, in some situations we're actually having the reader and the public uh, influencing the news agenda. So one example we had of this was um, Ched Evans, who is a, a soccer player, professional soccer player in the UK, very, very top level. Um, he was convicted of rape and served uh, two and a half years of his sentence in prison, but never actually um, acknowledged that, that it had happened well up until a certain point, you know, uh, denied it had taken place. Now, when he came out of um, prison, he was a convicted rapist, and he came out of prison and a top-level club tried to bring him back into uh, sport again at the very, very highest level. And it caused a public outcry. You know, we had politicians, we had uh, Olympic athletes, but more to the point, we had the general public tweeting their disapproval, setting up Facebook campaigns. And it was a situation where the news story, it ran and ran and ran. You know, it ran for days and days on end, even into weeks. And it's all because uh, social media sort of mobilized the reader. So the journalists, when they're looking at what's going on in the world, what matters to citizens, they can see it very clearly. And it gives them a much better ability to gauge public opinion. And what we have now is an environment where, in some cases, and I'm not sure if you, you'd agree with this, um, it, it can be led by the reader, uh, the, the news agenda. Well, I, yeah, I mean, the scariest moment for me in, in reading this book was, was the uh, algorith algorithmic news of the, of the future. Um, the, the, the thought that, that the news agenda would actually be created by a machine which, was, which is responsive and learning as it, as it sees the taste of, of the audience. Um, and I, I find that terrifying because uh, I, I fear the descent into, into the lowest denominator. Well, it's certainly... The Aside from you wouldn't need editors and publishers. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. No, the technical side um, of online media and, and reputation management is... You know, I do a lot of work in that area at the moment. We're moving uh, towards sort of the cyber era and how privacy is so um, valuable for many, many clients, individuals. So 
when I first started working in, in this industry, it was all about social media. Let's get the message out there. Let's put content out there. Let's talk. Let's engage. And, you know, five, six, seven years later, people are suddenly thinking, whoa, there is a lot of information out there about me, about my company. How do I control this? How do I manage it? How do I maintain some level of, of privacy? Or am I forced into the spotlight and forced into communicating all the time? And inevitably, as um, reader habits move towards uh, search engines for finding their news, this is geared by you know algorithms, and effectively Google will control what is what is most relevant or what is perceived as most accurate about your brand or, or yourself as a person or a certain news story, and it can be. A, based on a whole host of factors, you know, the amount of um, keywords that are mentioned in an article, the amount of inbound links, the amount of social shares, but it's all, you know, algorithms, it's, it's, it's all data, and w before we know it, we're moving into an era where, as I, as I often say, is if you don't manage your reputation or your company's reputation, then a search engine is going to do it for you, and, and a computer is, is going to do it for you, basically. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the interesting things, if you leave it up to the algorithm, you leave it up to the computer, they will make decisions that, that are based on a, a, a kind of reasonability or, or, or reason that may be really damaging. I mean, we, in the in the middle, these folks will will know. But we had a we had a mayor in the city um, until until recently who had a drug and alcohol problem, um, which was something that we raised repeatedly in the in the Toronto Star. Our reporters had even seen a tape of him um, snorting with his brothers, and and um, had had let people know. But it was fascinating. I mean, we broke that story, and there was tremendous backlash and a very well-organized campaign against us, and we actually did some polling with 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 our own readers in the middle of that, mm -hmm. and more than 50% said they didn't believe our story. And at that point, you say, okay, would, would you throw the hand in? But of course you can't. I'm afraid the algorithm might say, okay, well let's let's go on to you know Miss Brazil. I mean, we whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the next the next step. Yeah. You know, we stuck it out, and eventually, we, as it turned out, we were vindicated. You don't get vindicated in, a, in every circumstance, um, but you still have to have that that deeper commitment to the truth. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, the legacy of the online footprint is is a real concern for many at the moment. Um, you mm. know, what's to say uh, what story? Um, is most relevant to an individual when I'm dealing with private clients, particularly a Shatala's reputation. You know, they may have um, been engaged in media activity for four, five, six years. Um, an article that's five years old may rank number one or two for their name. Um, yet it, it could be a completely negative article. Uh, it could be factually incorrect. Um, but when people Google that person, that's what they're seeing. And this online footprint is a, is a real concern, especially when you... Um, and move away and, as you say, take away the, the human element and the human um, control or, or interaction. Yeah, that's nice. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you. I, in my sense is that people are curating all of this vast information by drilling down vertically into silos of interest and they're not reading as broadly as they were when they were reading in print. I'd like your comments on that. So they're not reading as broadly. As broadly as when they were actually going through a print publication. And yes, I, I mean, well, it's difficult to know. I think, I think the fact is that social media has changed the way people are consuming their news. Um, whether they're not reading as broadly, I'm not sure, but they're certainly probably not reading as extensively. And I mean that by when you're working with platforms such as Twitter, where it's put 140 characters or less, and that's your, your news bite for the day, and it's being continuously updated. So yes, you're getting very cutting edge and progressive news updates, and you know what's going on, and you can engage it. But there is something to be said for losing that ability to read a 2,000-word feature or you know 1,000-word feature that's very, very in-depth and tackles the debate. And this is this whole concept around whether um, the digital age is actually dumbing down, um, dumbing down news and, and making, uh, changing the way that we consume it. And there is there is an argument that that is taking place, and we see it with, as you were 
um, talking about with, with the mayor online, who, yes, that is a, a newspaper that does play a role in um, tackling very, very serious issues, you know, um, certain political issues, uh, the, the criminal reporting, whatever it may be. But online, they've got a model where the entire right-hand side of the page to sort of, I think if you could scroll and scroll and scroll for ages, it's all about bikinis, it's all about photographs, it's all about lifting tweets from celebrities' accounts. Um, and it, it's quite sort of a contradiction really when you see that next to what is a very very serious news story and probably even more worrying when you look at um, how many people are clicking on the the pictures of the celebrities in the bikinis compared to the people clicking on the in-depth features. I think physically, the, the, the gestalt of, of a newspaper, and, and, and we, we feel like we're rediscovering it with a tablet, is so very different than, than the, the way in which the, the website and, uh, leads you to drill down. Um, but certainly, the other, the other thing we do know, although the, you know, the information is, is also sketchy, but what we do know, both in Canada and the United States, uh, and in most of the in most developed countries, is is that young people say they need the news today at a rate of about half of what their grandparents said, and they're spending about half that they say self-reporting, spending about half the time that their grandparents did, and of course they're voting at even less than half the rate mm-hmm. that their grandparents did. That's, so, yeah, we've lost breadth and depth. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know that may be down to the fact now that as we see a move away from the traditional print press, people aren't, you know, necessarily the, the younger generation aren't going and buying um, their broadsheet newspaper and spending Sunday morning or all of Sunday reading it. Um, they don't have so much of an affinity to the actual print publication. Um, instead, they flick through their Twitter very, very quickly um, and get all of their news update, and therefore they feel like they're educated about certain issues. Um, it's a different type of consumption because arguably, if we go back to just reading the, the detailed analysis that you would see in a broadsheet newspaper, yes, you've got a comprehensive understanding of the issues, but it's not as up to date as, as the, Twitter communi- the Twitter community are and the Twitter user. So, so it, it, it's different, but we're certainly losing that feel maybe for the... the, the spending all Sunday really breaking down um, into the issues. And it's all about a fast, rapid society. And that's, I'm afraid, the world that we're, we're living in now. I think we're getting the hook. Thank any you other, so I don't mean to cut off questions. Any, any, one, please. One oh. right. yep. Great, great information and great investigative reporting on our former mayor. I told Michael Cook at the time, I believe you, keep going. Um, my question is, my 12-year-old son came up to me the other day and said that he had monetized his YouTube site, that he has 222 subscribers and he had made some video for Minecraft that had 17,000 views. And he just received his first paycheck last month for $10 from YouTube. So it makes me think, how do we kind of prepare the Can I get his name at the end of the yeah. <laughs> I, I, I haven't Thank let him you. use his name Thank yet. I, he's got a, his production company since he was nine. But anyway, um, I, I want to know how we can engage these young people who are our future, our future voters and our future readers and all this to kind of think about education. How can we make them want to go to that next step? And how will the digital arena play into how they are educated moving forward? Because if they're doing that at 12, I mean, I got my first email at 24. So it makes me wonder. Um, children's use of technology. It's an, it's an area that um, I do uh, quite, quite a bit of work in, and I have to say it's um, a frightening world, um, I think, you know, to grow up in now, to have all of your social networks online, um, all of the vulnerabilities that that brings with it. We've had a lot of discussion in the UK, and I think um, as well over in uh, North America about revenge porn, for example, and, and sexting, sexting, sorry, <laughs> sexting, and how there are so many threats now on, in the digital landscape. I think we can't run away from technology. We can't bear our heads in the sand. It's not going to go away. Um, only a, a couple of months ago, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, is this internet thing really staying around? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. So I think um, the answer is now that we have to understand um, and do our best to educate ourselves about technology. 
um, we don't all come from the generation that use it, so the awareness is vital, and it is the way of accessing the young people, so we can't run away from it, we can't bury our heads in the sand, but we have to all the time think of new ways of engaging them in the right way, um, and, and that's crucial. And these are great tools. I mean, the thing that's really exciting from a, a news person's perspective is that these are great tools with which to engage uh, young people and, and uh, even their parents and grandparents. Thank you. Um, please welcome Mr. Bruce McClellan to the podium to thank our speakers today. Thank you. Before I uh, thank our, our two speakers, um, just a little unconventional, but I want to mention that uh, this is uh, Laura's first visit to Canada and she's accompanied by her mother. So I want to uh, first thank Mrs. Tugood for being here and for bringing Laura into the world. So well done. So I uh, was recommended Laura's book several months ago by a, a colleague in our PR industry and uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, the topic of PR and journalism is a, is a interesting one and you've chosen to write about what I consider this never-ending difficult marriage uh, of, of the relationship between PR people and, and, and journalism. Um, I, as a young political assistant um, back at Queen's Park many decades ago, remember an equally young uh, Globe reporter um, in John <laughs> at that time. And um, I always knew John to be a, a friendly journalist who was always willing to hear another story or get to know someone better. And uh, thank you for hosting this discussion because you haven't changed and it's great that you're now in such a leadership role in the media. Uh, Laura, you've raised some very important issues in your book and in your discussion today. And both PR and journalism are at a transformative stage of our, of our history. And we're both trying to understand how people build trust and maintain trust and attract attention and can get paid a living for it. Uh, so uh, our two professions that are in your title uh, share some challenges and it's great that we're having this dialogue together and it's great that you've uh, taken such a leadership role in, in writing the book and uh, writing it on in your spare time as you work, uh, as you are a, a marathon runner as well, uh, and I'm sure you do lots of other things in your life, so um, it's easy to feel quite uh, modest around you. Uh, but it's an honor to have you here, and uh, we've really enjoyed the presentation, and I know I speak for everyone in the audience in thanking you. So, thank you. Before we all leave today, I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous sponsors, uh, Environix Communications. I'd also like to thank, sorry, John, the National Post is our print media sponsor. <laughs> This meeting will be broadcast on Rogers TV. Please consider becoming a member of the Empire Club. The perks of membership include, include uh, reduced ticket prices to our lunches, advance notice and priority seating at events, and invitations to member-only events to make it easier for you. For the balance of the season, we're offering a special promotion. Join us and we'll throw in a lunch. This is the last month of our season this year, and we're planning to go out with a bang. We have a great lineup for the next couple of weeks. We're hosting uh, Mayor John Tory uh, next Monday. Uh, he'll be talking to us about the future of the gardener, so we hope you'll come to see that one. On June 9th, Wednesday, uh, sorry, Tuesday, June 9th, we'll be having Jim Balsilli, Jackie McNish, and Sean Selkoff discovering uh, discussing the lessons learned from BlackBerry. The Governor General is coming on June 19th, and Victor Dodig, CEO of, C of CIBC, one of our bigger banks, uh, will be coming to speak with us uh, about technology and banking on June 23rd. So to learn more about membership and about upcoming events, visit us online at www.empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at empire underscore club. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you all for coming, and we'll see you soon, hopefully at one of the next lunches. Thank you.